0: Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers." Most of us today don't say that, Father. But the Jews in Israel are as awesome and as wonderful as the ten mighty plagues by which you delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. You promised at the end of time, after the Jews would be born banished to the four corners of the earth, you promised to bring them back. And my what a mighty work you have done. We sit in awe and think and ponder of the hundred plus nations that you brought the Israelites back into the land. Thank you for your protection over Israel. Thank you that this skirmish, at least for now, is over. Thank you that your people, Israel, cannot be destroyed, that you will complete the second coming of your son just as you use them For the first coming that you will complete the return of your son through Israel. So help us to guard our hearts from the growing anti-Semitic spirit in our nation and across our world. We thank you that we're able to gather, that our children are meeting in Sunday schools, that we've had the chance to meet in adult Bible fellowships this morning. Though it is certainly your word teaches the responsibility of the parents to teach and train the children. Thank you that we can come alongside and help them and encourage them, and especially for those children who have no home where the parents acknowledge Christ as Lord. We pray for the week that's in front of us. We ask for opportunities to encounter people who are in need of the forgiveness of Christ And that you would give us sensitivity to those people and not miss the chance to reach out to them. We just sang, Father, though our sins that are many, your mercy is even more. And we're just astounded by the incredible grace you showed us in your Son who bore all of our sin in his body on the cross. Thank you that you've entrusted to us the greatest message and news this world will ever, ever hear. May we be good stewards. Now, as we open your word, may the Spirit of God, the teacher whom you promised to send, may he illumine the truth that is here, that we might rightly divide the word of truth and make proper application. I ask for his strength to fill me and empower me, and I pray for the meeting tonight as we come back for Meet the Pastor, that you would bless that meeting. That you would bring believers who need a church home and unbelievers who need Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn, please, to Acts chapter 2. We've been in a verse by verse study of the Epistle of James, and God willing, we'll pick it up next time. But we pushed the pause button today because this is the day of Pentecost. And I have had so many questions in the last 18 months about speaking in tongues and this new reformation, new apostolic reformation movement that seems to be sweeping the country in some parts stronger than others. And so how are we to understand all these things that we read about on the day of Pentecost? This is a very, very important passage. As you're finding Acts 2, I'd like to ask you a question. Which theological group does the following? Erratic jerking, shaking, uncontrollable laughter people getting slain in the Spirit, speaking in tongues. What group would you say? Well, you might say Charismatics, Pentecostals, the World Faith, Word Faith Movement, the new Apostolic Reformation Movement, but you would be equally correct if you said Hinduism because there's a sect within Hinduism. Remember, the people in India are about ready to pass the people in China in terms of the number of people on the earth. Next year, there will be more Indian people than any other race of people on the earth. If you reach India and you reach China, you've made huge strides in reaching the world for Christ. But there is Hindu Kundalini You can go online, you can witness their movement. They speak in tongues, no different from what you hear across America. They're slain in the spirit. They break out into uncontrollable laughter, which you know, of course, they're not Christians. Therefore, that certainly could not be from God. And it's a constant reminder to us that we should never judge and evaluate our spirituality by our experience. Now, when you come to Acts 2, it marks a real launching point in the work of God on the earth. Remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden when God created man with a free will. That's part of being made in the image of God. He said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day, it's emphatic, in the very day, you eat from it, you shall surely die. And they died that day just as God had predicted. They died immediately on the inside. They began to die on the outside. So we're born dying, we're aging, we're getting older and older. And if the problem's not fixed, we will die eternally. But what took place in the Garden of Eden, what man lost, that intimacy with God was reestablished at Calvary through the work of the Lord Jesus. And in Acts 2, among other things, we find the birthday of the church. You know, the early church would not be impressed by the technology, by the buildings, by the political, social influence that we think we have as evangelicals. They had none of those things. And yet they did more to turn the world upside down for Christ than any of us. And one of the reasons is because of what we learn here in Acts chapter two. This passage is a fulfillment of what God had said in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Spirit and what the Lord Jesus said to his apostles on the night he was betrayed. So Acts 2, we're not going to read the entire passage, but I want to begin in verse 1. I know people come here every week. They have not been to a church where you need a Bible, and that's tragic. That's why the American church is so sick and weak And if you don't own a good modern literal translation, come tonight and you'll get one at Meet the Pastor. Acts 2, beginning now in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves as they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites? and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. Now, there's a note-taking outline in your bulletin. If you're new, if you're online, there's a place there for you to print one out. You might want to jot down a few thoughts this morning so you can go home and think and study these further. three simple truths as to what happened on the day of Pentecost. The first dynamic is unfolded in verses 1 through 3, and it concerns the evidence of the Spirit's coming. The evidence of the Spirit's coming. The setting is given here in verse 1, if you'll notice, when the day of Pentecost had come. If you have the NASB, which is really the gold standard of English translations, it's the most literal precise text that's available to us in the English language, you will notice sometimes when there is an issue going on in the text where maybe they forsake literalness to make it a little bit more readable, they'll put a footnote so you don't miss it. And if you look in the margin, you will say, it says literally. Uh, The marginal notes say, when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. So this was a fulfillment of something that had gone on for centuries. When the day of Pentecost was fulfilled or had come, they were all together in one place. Now, in chapter 1, you discover they're in an upper room. And they are there for among other reasons, because Christ said at the ascension, as recorded at the end of Luke and in Acts 1-4, That you're not to leave Jerusalem, but you're to wait for what the Father has promised. The Father had promised by the prophets the coming of the Holy Spirit, where he would take a man's heart of stone and make it soft and pliable, and he likens it to a heart of flesh, where people could know the Lord, not just of his existence, but know him in a personal, life-changing way. And so he does not want them to go out to try to witness to the first person until God the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus said in Matthew sixteen eighteen, I will build my church. He didn't say we would build his church. He said he would build his church. And that's why he said, do not leave Jerusalem until you receive that which the Father has promised. And so there on the Mount of Olives, Luke fills in some details in that gospel, and he adds to it in Acts 1, same day, same time, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So here they are. They're in an upper room, and they are in obedience to the Lord, one replacing the one apostle who had defected. And so they replaced Judas with Matthias. Very important. It was prophetically spoken that one would defect. He wasn't a puppet. He did it by his own will. But God, knowing beforehand he would do it, wrote about it in the Old Testament. But they also recognize it's not the time for us to go out and try to win the world for Christ. And let me just say by application, it's absolutely foolish and beyond foolish, it's disobedience to try to minister in your own power rather than the power of Christ. Furthermore, in verse 1, we're told that this was the day of Pentecost. The Jews would call it Shavuot. And so if you go to Israel today, all seven feasts are still, still celebrated. We're going, God willing, in September, the conflict is over, but I scheduled it right after the Feast of Tabernacles, because so many things shut down. Why? Because about a third of the people in Israel still get in little tabernacles, and they live in it for a week, just as God instructed in the Old Testament. Well, this is one of those seven feasts, Shavuot. It's the Hebrew word for weeks. But remember, the Jews also spoke uh, Greek, and so most Jews spoke Greek, and so that was their lingua franca. They had lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And so most referred to this day as Pentecost. Pentecost is 50. You could write the number 50. It's the Greek word for 50. So 50 days after the first day of Passover comes Pentecost. Pentecost Day is the Greek word. It means 50. Why are they here? Because God commanded them to be here. Not just the 120, but every pious Jew was to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, for this particular festival. Listen to Deuteronomy 16:16. 16, 16. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which He chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed." So this is one of three major festivals, three pilgrim festivals that a pious Jewish male, and he would often bring his whole family, had to appear before the Lord. And God spells it out in Leviticus 23. Let me read from Leviticus 23, starting in verse 15. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day which you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. In other words, Pentecost occurs 50 days after the first day of Passover. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So 50 days, the 50th day after the seventh Sabbath, seven times seven is 49, you have the Feast of Pentecost. And that's today, this Sunday. This is the 50th day after Easter, if you remember. And so, historically, especially in liturgical churches, they always have Pentecost Sunday. I'm not against liturgical churches, but typically liturgical churches get lost in liturgy, and they don't teach the Bible, and people read things that may be rich, but they have no understanding as to their biblical substance, largely because those denominations that are liturgical have jettisoned the Bible as true, and therefore they don't typically teach it. Now, because most of us are not Jewish, when we hear Pentecost, we only think Acts 2. But remember, in the Old Testament, there are seven Moadim, seven feasts, seven appointed times that God dictated, four in the spring, three in the fall. And all seven feasts, we go, seven. <laughs> all seven feasts picture the redeeming work of the Messiah. The first four were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. The next three have yet to be fulfilled, but they will be fulfilled during the time of the great tribulation, the fall feasts. With that said, each feast is a picture of the Lord Jesus. It's not by accident. So the first feast that's mentioned that they celebrated, of course, was Passover, where they would slay an innocent, unblemished lamb. And of course, it was a picture of what Jesus did on Calvary. And Paul will say, for indeed, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. The second feast after Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven, as you know, is often a symbol of sin in Scripture. So you use unleavened bread to picture something that was sinless. That began on the day after Passover. Jesus is buried in the ground as the sinless Son of Man. The third feast was called the Feast of First Fruits. So, Jesus dies on Friday. He's in the grave on Saturday. And on the Feast of First Fruits, he comes out alive. He's resurrected. And so, when you count from First Fruits 49 days through the Feast of Weeks, you come to the 50th day, which is Pentecost. Now, First Fruits is familiar, especially to farmers. They speak of first tomatoes or first strawberries and first corn that comes in early, and it's a picture typically of the harvest that is to come. And so Jesus dies on Friday, is raised on Sunday, walks on the earth for 40 days with many convincing miracles and proofs, as the Scripture says. He ascends into heaven, and 10 days later, Pentecost happens. He is the first fruit, Paul says, of those to come out of the grave. Others had been raised to life in the body they died in, only to die again. Christ was resurrected to life in a new body, in a resurrected body. There's parallels between your old body that will be raised someday. People in heaven don't have their resurrection bodies yet. Don't say, oh, well, they're up in heaven in their glorified body. No, they're not. It hasn't happened yet. Now, it appears they have some intermediate body like Samuel who appears like Moses and Elijah, and the Old Testament saints aren't raised until the end of the seven-year period, Daniel 12 tells us, but they're wearing robes, so they're hanging on something. I'm not sure how it works, but I do know the Scripture is clear and all agree in the history of the church that the resurrection of the body has not yet taken place. So Christ is raised in first fruits, and the 50th day comes Pentecost. He dies on Passover. His sinless body is in the grave on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's raised in the Feast of Firstfruits. And the Spirit of God comes on Pentecost. And what's pictured in the redeeming work of the Messiah is written 15 centuries ever before it happens. And if you're not familiar with the seven feasts, you might want to go home and just read Leviticus chapter 23. Now, it's interesting, Jesus is raised on Sunday, and 50 days later, the church begins on Sunday. That's why we worship on the first day of the week. We don't worship on the Old Testament Sabbath. Some of the old Puritan writers loosely say, well, this is the Sabbath. It's really not. This is the Lord's Day. Now, there will come a time in the future, the scripture is clear, when Christ will rule and reign on the earth, when his kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven, as we're instructed to pray by him. He'll rule for a thousand years. Those promises yet to be fulfilled will literally be fulfilled. When that happens, we will worship again on Saturday. But right now, God has a distinct group of people. They're made up of Jew and Gentile, every nation on the earth. And we meet on the first day of the week, and it, there's a reason for it, because the Lord of the Sabbath dictated that. Now, the setting is further described here. Look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, again, was being fulfilled, had come, they were together in one place. And by the way, if you read Acts 2 carefully with Acts 1, and Acts 1, they're in the upper room. When you come to Acts 2, they're in a different place. And, of course, when you read the end of Luke's gospel, It tells us very clearly they weren't hanging around in, uh, you know, at the Ascension in that one room for ten days. He goes on to tell us they were continually going to the temple and worshiping there. And when you read Acts 2, it's very clear they're in some room right near the temple area because when the 120 spill out on the day of Pentecost, it's not by accident that all these Jews who are worshiping at the temple hear them speak of the mighty deeds of God, and then 3,000 are saved. And when they're saved, where are they baptized? Right at the base of the southern steps, they have found 48 we'd call baptismals today. Jews went through those as they prepared their hearts for worship in the temple. They would go through a cleansing process. They'd walk up 15 steps. They'd read 15 different psalms, and they prepared their hearts for worship. We don't do that today. Most Christians don't prepare their hearts for anything. We we come to church, we're drinking coffee, eating donuts in some church, and you think, now, what is this, a coffee house or is this a worship service? The pastor looks like he's getting ready to go to the beach. Hey, look, I'm I'm not opposed to uh, people coming in jeans or anything else. But as a pastor... I want everyone to feel comfortable, and I want the guy who wants to come with a tie to feel as comfortable as the guy who comes in jeans. But you see, we've dumbed down the pastorate. You go to the White House, you'll wear a tie, I promise you. Even the sportscasters and the newscasters, there's a certain uh, significance to their profession where they wear a tie. I'm coming to open the Word of God, and I wear a tie. And so don't ask me, when are you going to wear an open collar and jeans like the church I came from? Because I'm not. (laughs) With that said, you wear whatever you want to wear. You can come however you want to come. But the whole professionalism as the pastor has been dumbed down. And it's really become almost a mockery. When the day of Pentecost had come... They were together in one place. And they're in this room near the Temple Mount. And they're going to come out on those southern steps. They're also called the teaching steps. You go to Israel and you can say, hey, this is one place where Jesus literally walked. And some of the original steps 2,000 years ago are still there. And the mikvahs, where they baptized those folks, they've been found all around those southern steps. So I want you to notice how the fulfillment of a promise and the confirmation of the promise of the Spirit came. First, His coming was evidenced audibly. His coming was evidenced audibly. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise. Unlike a hurricane that might be forecasted, it happened suddenly, like an earthquake without warning even though they knew the coming of the Spirit was imminent because Christ had promised it, there's a certain element of surprise. And so Luke tells us a noise came from heaven. In other words, this is no man-made sound. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now the word noise is the Greek word echos. You can hear our English word comes directly from it. Echo, echos, echo. And so there was like this echoing sound like a violent, rushing wind. Maybe if you've ever heard a tornado or stayed for one of our hurricanes, you know what I'm speaking about. And the text says it came from heaven. What gave it the marks of being from heaven? He uses a simile. He says it's like there's no wind, but it's like the sound of a violent, rushing wind. It would be like standing next to one of those F-35s that make more noise, it seems, than the F-18s did around here, And, and you hear those engines going, but there's no wind, and not by accident. It's God getting people's attention. And by the way, I don't think it's insignificant that God uses the word wind here, because most of you know that the word wind and spirit in both Hebrew and Greek is the exact same word. So, ruach. Wind is also used to describe God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. As in the New Testament, Numa is used to describe God the Holy Spirit. Here's an example, John 3, 8, a play on words. The wind, Numa, blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Numa, the Spirit. But the noise factor is also significant. Why? Because it attracts a crowd. Now, the ancient historians like Josephus would tell us people were always coming to Jerusalem. They were always coming to the temple, and so typically there would be between eighty and 100,000 people on any given day in Jerusalem. But when the feast days came, the city would swell to over 2 million people. Pious, God-fearing Jews came from across Israel and from the surrounding nations in obedience to God. And God wants to attract people. Just like God cares about the people of Israel, and he says, Moses, put that serpent up high on a pole. Why? Because there's 600,000 men, excluding women and children. I want anyone who wants to see it, they can look at it. In the same way, God creates this noise because he wants to draw people to this place where they're going to hear the gospel. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, first, his coming was evidenced audibly. Secondly, his coming was evidenced visibly. It was evidenced visibly. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves as they rested on each one of them. Apparently, a a fire-like ball, maybe a pillar of fire like the one that led them in the wilderness, came into the room, and the fire began to distribute itself. The King James says it divided itself. Some translations say it separated itself. And this flame of fire appears like a tongue, and it rested on each person. Now, the verse doesn't say specifically how it rested. Maybe it was over each head, and so they looked like 120 birthday candles on the birthday of the church. But in either case, again, it's a simile. There appeared to them tongues as of fire. So this was not a literal flame that would burn you, just like the wind was not moving air, but it appears as fire, and it's on each one of them. And that's significant because it's a reminder that the work of the Spirit is individual. I can't be born again for you, and you can't be born again for me. And unless you're born again, Jesus said, you'll never see the inside of heaven. Now, this day was a fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. John the Baptist, at the beginning of his ministry, preached about it. The Old Testament prophets wrote about it. Jesus, at the ascension, reminded them of it. Where he said in Acts 1, 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This was a fulfillment of this. We call this the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where at the moment of conversion today, you receive the Holy Spirit. You are indwelled by him. If you've been saved, you've had the baptism of the Spirit. And we know this is the baptism of the Spirit because when Peter gives us divine commentary in Acts eleven sixteen, he looks back on this event, and that's what he refers to. It to us. So once again, fire is a fitting symbol for the Spirit's coming because fire symbolized the divine presence of God in the Old Testament. In the Exodus, Moses met God in a blazing fire as God speaks from the midst of the bush. In Deuteronomy 5, God, uh, through Moses, reminds us that the people at Mount Horeb, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. And, of course, he led the children of Israel by the day with a pillar of fire. And so it's an appropriate symbol to describe the third member of the Godhead because fire spreads, it consumes, it purifies, it illumines, it warms, and it comforts. And all of those expressions are ministries of the Holy Spirit available to us even today. And I think it's interesting that when this fire comes, it's not shaped like a hand. It's shaped like a tongue. It's as if God is shouting, communicate, go to the lost and preach because this is why the Spirit came. He came to help you to do this. Uh, Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, what are you going to do? You're going to preach. What are you going to preach? Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name starting in Jerusalem. And let me just say that if you are a Spirit-filled Christian, you will share your faith. Now, if you're a Christian, you're indwelt by the Spirit. But there are many believers today who are indwelt by the Spirit who aren't filled with the Spirit. That's why their marriages are crummy. And their kids couldn't give a flip because they're not spirit-filled. And one of the reasons they're not spirit-filled is because they're part of the lukewarm age when sin would grow and lawlessness would increase that will typify the body of Christ at the end of time before Christ's return. But look, if you are not sharing your faith then you're not filled with the Spirit. Don't don't convince yourself you're a Spirit-filled Christian if you do not, as a way of life, try to reach lost people, whatever expression that may take. Christ said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. If we're not following, if we're not fishing, we're not following. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, and He's commissioned us to do the same. And so if I'm not obedient to that, then I'm not Spirit-filled, and I'm really missing the abundant life that Christ promised for me. Now, pay attention. The promise of his coming was evidenced audibly. It was evidenced visibly. Third, it was evidenced linguistically. It was evidenced linguistically. The 120 persons in the upper room heard something. They saw something, but they also said something. Without question, the Holy Spirit was in this noise There's these external manifestations of wind and fire, but now there's an internal manifestation that is delineated here in verse 4. Notice, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, you might want to underline or circle two words, other tongues. Most of you know that there are two words for other or another in Greek, to distinguish. Like Jesus said, I'm going to send you another helper. There's the word alos, meaning another just like me. And then there's the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. I'm going to send you an alos helper, referring to the Holy Spirit. He is going to be just like me. That's why he can say, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I am going to come to you. Well, this is the word Heteros, And we use this as a prefix in English. We have the word heterosexual to describe different sexes. We have the word heterodoxy to describe someone who teaches something different. And here, he is using it of another language. In other words, these men and women, they're speaking a language that they did not previously know. And let me just say that the word language, glossa, in every single instance, both in the Scripture and outside the Scripture, is used to refer to a real, literal, human language without exception. But since the tongues that people speak today are not recognizable Since they are no different from what many of the cults, like the Way International, they're a cult. They deny the deity of Christ, doctrine of the Trinity, the authority of Scripture. But if you want to go to heaven through their group, you need to speak in tongues. You typically pay $100, and they'll teach you how to speak in tongues. Well, some of our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers would say, well, these are just unknown languages because there's a rendering in 1 Corinthians 15 in the Old King James that speaks of an unknown language, but the word unknown is not in the Greek text, but they did it to try to describe that this was unknown to the speaker, but they were speaking it. But it might be a little confusing today. So they say, well, you know, these things that we speak today, it's a language, it's just a language we don't know. Or some would say, well, uh, the miracle that happened on the day of Pentecost was not in the mouths of the 120, but in the ears of the multitude who came to listen. In other words, the 120 were just speaking the everyday language that they spoke day after day after day, but the miracle was in the ears and that they heard these words in their own language. Well, verse 4 specifically says they spoke these tongues, and contextually, as we'll see, that's the only possible way you can understand the reaction that follows. They spoke other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. By the way, they didn't have to be taught how to speak in tongues. They didn't have to read some book on how to speak in tongues. They weren't told to repeat these phrases where you prime the pump so that you can speak in a tongue. You didn't have to develop your ability to speak in a tongue. And by the way, none of us choose what gifts God gives us. All will not speak in tongues, will they? Paul asks, of course not just like all won't do some of the other gifts. God gives gifts as He chooses as He wills. And on this case, He gave 120 people this gift of tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now look at verse 5. Notice how the miracle is further described. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout. Devout is a word that we don't use much anymore, but we might say God-fearing. Devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember, like Passover, the Pentecost celebration would draw people from the country and from the surrounding countries. From every nation under heaven, the text says. You say, should I take that literally? Did he mean American Indians? Did he mean Australian Aborigines? Well, he's speaking from the viewpoint of the biblical writer, from his own horizon, from the Greco-Roman world in which he lived, from the many different countries Jewish people would come from in order to celebrate one of these three feasts that God required. Now, hold that thought, because we're going to come back to it, because there's actually more to it. But you could certainly argue that this is an idiomatic expression, meaning from many different places, from all the nations that the Jews had been disport dispersed, and they're called devout men. These are, these are people who are God-fearing. Today, you go to Israel, only about a third of the people are practicing Jews. The rest are just their hardcore pagans. I mean, you want to see one of the most outwardly wicked cities in the world, like San Francisco, go to Tel Aviv. It will shock you. And the Orthodox can hardly stand it. But there's coming a day in Israel's future, during the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, when God, through Jewish witnesses, is going to bring about the conversion of Jews. Now, two-thirds of the Jews will perish during the tribulation period, the prophet Zechariah tells us. Two-thirds will die. Now, whether all those who die are unbelievers, we don't know because there'll be many Gentiles converted during that same period of time who will be beheaded for their faith. But a third of the Jews will survive the great tribulation and will see the fulfillment of the Old Testament promised kingdom. Verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Thousands of people hear this noise. They're attracted to this place. The 120 come out and 3,000 are saved. Not by accident. By the way, the Jews argue that on Shavuot... That was the day God gave the law, which, if you remember, 3,000 perished. This is Shavuot, Pentecost, where 3,000 are saved. But you see that word language here at the end of verse 6? It's a different word. It's not the word that we just saw glossa. It's the Greek word dialectos. You can hear our English word dialect in it. In fact, if you have the NASB, the marginal note will indicate that it is the word dialect. You know what a dialect is. It's a regional, a social expression, either by the way you pronounce something or the grammar or the vocabulary that you use. And so these 120 were not just speaking different foreign languages. They were speaking different dialects within the foreign language. So think about it in our day. You know, we speak American English. It's a little different from the dialect of British English. They would say they have the real English, and we've got the American version. But then as uh, you listen in different places in America, we have different kinds of vocabs. You know, we, some speak of a hoagie, some speak of a submarine, some speak of a grinder, depending where you live. And then the way people sound. Uh, people in Maine sound very different than people in Massachusetts. And people in New York and New Jersey, they have kind of that, you know, nasally sound, Niyak and jazzy. And then when you come to Delaware, it's kind of a mix between the South and the North. And uh, you come into the South, and South Carolinian uh, dialect is very different from Texas, and Alabama has its own twang. I just want you to appreciate the full scope of the miracle that's happening here in Acts 2. Here's a guy, say, from Southern Cappadocia, And he's hearing a Galilean speak Cappadocian, not only the language, but the perfect dialect that goes with it. Not only English, if all I knew was Chinese, but perfect South Carolinian English. Look, when God does a miracle, he does it first class. And we don't want to depreciate the mighty working of God as so many do today. Verse 7, they were amazed, we could say blown away in modern English, and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Yes, 120 are Galileans. Remember, that was where Christ focused his ministry, in Galilee. His new hometown was Capernaum in Galilee. They heard these Galileans who were considered ignorant, uneducated, unsophisticated hicks known for their pidgin Aramaic speaking different languages and dialects within the language they had a distinct dialect remember the day Peter was arrested oh you're one of his no I'm not and she said that slave girl surely you are one of them for even the way you talk gives you away not on, she would. she just knew by his dialect you're one of those Galileans Now, the speech of the 120 is not some ecstatic utterance, which is what we see today, not just in some of our Pentecostal and charismatic brethren, and some are brethren, many are not. Many have never been born again, but they have this experience. I don't have enough hands and toes to count the number of people who've come here over the years who've told me they have spoken in tongues and don't even know the plan of salvation. Can you not know the plan of salvation and have a spiritual gift? Of course not. You have to know what it is God is asking you to believe before you can be born again. And at the moment of conversion on your spiritual birthday, God gives you a spiritual gift. And there are some 20 that are listed in the New Testament. What happens in this chapter is a miracle. What happens today is no different that went back two centuries before Christ, the Hellenistic Greco-Roman world, they spoke in these tongues. This was nothing new. What was new in Pentecost was a miraculous expression of being able to speak a previously unknown language, and unlike gibberish… They were preaching the mighty deeds of God. Now, I'm not trying to be unloving. I'm just trying to lift the fog of confusion in our day because what is happening in so many of our charismatic Pentecostal churches is not what took place in the day of Pentecost. But they'll baptize their view and they'll say, okay, I admit it, it's not a real human language. Then what's your answer? They'll take you to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, it's a chapter on love. The context is spiritual gifts, 12, 13, and 14, all deal with gifts. And his point is, is that if you're not expressing your gifts in love, it doesn't mean much. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, there it is. This is not a human tongue we're speaking. What you are hearing is an angelic tongue. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Understand, he's not saying here that people can speak with the tongues of angels. He's using hyperbole. He's not saying that people can speak with the tongues of angels any more than people have. All knowledge and all mysteries. The only one who has all knowledge and all mysteries is God Almighty. He's using hyperbole to drive home his point. Now, Acts 2 does not address the, need, uh, the gift of interpretation, which is another gift because there's no need for it on this day. But understand, not only was there the gift of tongues, there was a gift of interpretation. And really, if people just followed the guidelines that are given Scripture, only a couple in any given service, and only if someone has the gift of interpretation. Well, the Scripture says you should test the spirits to see whether they be of God. So we ought to be able to have someone speak the gift of tongues and someone stand up with the gift of interpretation. Suppose we recorded that. Someone speaks in tongues, someone else stands up and records it. Of course, I'm always amazed when I've been in these circles. Some guy speaks in tongues for 30 seconds, this guy goes on for five minutes. I said, you know, are we in the same camp here? But nonetheless, suppose then you pick someone else with the gift of interpretation. We'll play the same tongue to him. Let's see if he comes up with the same interpretation. It's never happened. Not once. Because what we have today is not the miracle of Acts chapter 2. Now, these are known languages, not ecstatic utterances. Look at the list beginning in verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of them in our own language, to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. You know what proselyte is? A Gentile convert believes in the God of Israel. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They didn't hear gibberish. They heard the mighty deeds of God in their own language and in their own dialect, and including the local lingua franca. There's 15 languages that, at the minimum, are represented here. So they hear this loud noise, What is that? They come and look, 120 men and women come out, and they hear the mighty words of God. These Jews who are believers, these Galileans who are speaking all these different languages because God is preparing them. He's drawn these people to Himself so that then when, they, when Peter stands up and gives an explanation and shares the gospel, many will be converted. Now, we read of devout Jews from every nation, and then, of course, These different nations that had been dispersed are named. You say, why is that important, Pastor? Hold your finger here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 14. I want to remind you of the fact that this miracle gift known as the gift of tongues was given for a specific purpose. 1 Corinthians 14, look at verse 20, brethren... Do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes. That's good advice. Paul says he'll have you to be wise to the things that are innocent, wise to the things that are good, but innocent to the things that are evil in Romans. Don't go home at night and pollute yourself on trash so that you can quote unquote relate to the culture. These pastors who give illustrations of these R-rated movies filled with sex and violence, I think, what are these guys doing except sanctioning lukewarmness and disobedience? Brethren, do not be children, you're thinking, yet an evil be babes, but in your thinking, be mature. And the lot is written, and then there's a quotation from the Old Testament, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Uh, there's a lot in those two verses. We could say a lot, but I want to focus on verse 22. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now, the problem in the church is they were not giving prophecy its place where someone was a conduit of direct revelation in a language they could understand. And they had these different people speaking in tongues, no interpretation, and no one was really being edified. But what I want you to see is that tongues, by the way, is a sign not to believers but to unbelievers. And so this gift that Paul calls the least of all gifts has probably created the most amount of division and trouble. Some people say, well, if you speak in a tongue, that means you're super spiritual. No, this verse tells me tongues are a sign not to believers, but to unbelievers. Today, some people have this strange idea that it's a mark of spirituality. And let me just say that if you are listening to me today and you speak in tongues, and it is a real, literal, actual language, then you have the real thing. But I've never met anyone. Oh, you know, I heard of this missionary pastor, and, you know, he was in this country, and he didn't know the language, and God spoke through a tongue so that that person could hear the gospel. Wonderful. I've never seen one documented case. I mean, why spend all the money we do in bringing this Bible translation projects that we've been engaged in, where people go in, they learn the culture, learn the language, interpret it? There's no documented case. You say, how do you know? I I could be wrong. I did my doctoral dissertation on this. I've read everything in print that is credible, never seen a documented case. You see, in Acts 2, it is so different. It's a verifiable language. And much that is happening under the umbrella of Christendom, people speaking gibberish, some are speaking gibberish right into hell. Because they've never heard the plan of salvation. Now, again, I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just dealing with reality here. Well, some say, well, this is not a, you know, the tongues of Acts 2. This is a prayer language. Really? Where do you get that in Scripture? Paul doesn't delineate between a prayer language and the gift of tongues. That's made up to try to justify something that's not true. Look, the real clear mark. Think about the Corinthians. They're like one of the worst churches in the New Testament. There's no perfect churches. I hope you know that. This one is not a perfect church. And if you were looking for a perfect church, don't join because you're ruining it, because we're all sinners. There are no perfect churches. But the Corinthians were really messed up. And yet, they're a unique group. And so many of them, they all spoke in tongues. We've been studying the book of James, the real mark of spirituality is not whether you speak in a tongue, but how you handle the one tongue that's in your head. But this is important. This is the birthday of the church. They had seen these outward signs, these outward manifestations. Now there is this inward proof. You see, when you're born again today, you can't see the Holy Spirit come inside of a person's life. But this is a new dividing point in the history of God's dealing with man, and so God wanted a visible internal expression in these outward manifestations to show that he was starting something new. Tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And so the group, they're amazed, they're perplexed. Put verses 8 and 11 together here on the screen. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? We hear them in our own tongues speaking. They're speaking of the mighty deeds of God. It's amazing. It's a miracle. By the way, he speaks of these various nations. And if you look at these groups that Luke delineates, and you go back to the table of nations, you remember the Tower of Babel, right? Right? when God confused the languages of the world. Now, how do we get all these different races and different-looking people? Tower of Babel. Now, the evolutionists said, no, there's uh, mutations. And so Hitler keyed off of uh, Karl Marx, and he keyed off of Charles Darwin and said, you know, black people are inferior, they're a mutation, as is the Jews and others, and what a wicked man. No, we're from one blood, Paul says in Acts 17. Everyone in this room is related. We may look different. But when the languages came, people married within the group that they could understand. And if you do that long enough... You will develop a certain melatonin in your skin, certain facial features, etc., etc. I can see a Ukrainian person. I'll walk up to someone, and I'll ask him in Ukrainian a question. He kind of looks at me. I just know he's Ukrainian because he, he looks like a Ukrainian who looks very different than a Russian. I've spent enough time there where I can immediately spot these folks. So the races came from the Tower of Babel. And God is just reminding us with all these languages that His church is multiracial, multinational, multilingual. The Tower of Babel, the languages were confused. But in Pentecost, and in kernel form at least, we see a reverse of the curse. At Babel, people got proud and boastful, and they tried to ascend to heaven. But at Pentecost, God descended from heaven to earth and the coming of the Spirit. They were confused, and they were scattered Here they were brought together, and so someday we will see the redeemed, as the revelation will say, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues before the Lamb of God. This is the evidence of the Spirit's coming. Secondly, let's think about the explanation of the Spirit's coming. The explanation of the Spirit's coming. First, think for a moment about the reaction they faced. Look at their reaction beginning now in verse 12. And they all continued in amazement, in great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Listening to these Galileans speak all these different languages and dialects, they ask an honest question. They're bewildered, they're amazed, they're perplexed. What does it mean? And some ask from an honest heart, And because of that, it's not some smokescreen question. Some people will ask you questions, not because they want to believe. They're trying to give you an excuse why they shouldn't believe. But some of these people were honestly asking. And that's why 3,000 are saved on this day. Others, in their amazement, they get sarcastic. And in their unbelief, we read in verse 13, others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. It's amazing how people, in the hardness of their heart, when you have clear, undefiable, uh, unexplainable, but clear evidence of a miracle, and they try to argue it away. I heard about a man who thought he was dead. And his wife, she just didn't know what to do. His sons, his daughters said, Dad, you're not dead. I'm dead. This is just a dream. So they brought him to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist tried to help him to see that he was not dead and couldn't get anywhere. So finally he said, well, look, dead men don't bleed. And to prove it, I, I'm going to take you in. He, they observed some autopsies, and he read some medical books. And he says, yes, I'm convinced dead men don't bleed. He said, let me have your hand. I won't hurt you. He took a little pen, and he pricked it, and out came the blood. And he says, oh, my, I guess dead men do bleed. <laughs> We see some people, in spite of clear evidence, argue it away. They're full of sweet wine. Since when does getting drunk allow you to speak a language perfectly in a dialect of a language that you had not previously known? In addition, think about the response Peter gave beyond the reaction he faced They, the apostles, really, think about the response he gave, verse 14, but Peter taking his stand with the 11. By taking his stand, it's not saying, well, I'm going to defend this point. It's not a metaphorical use of the word stand. He literally stood up, and so a number of English translations render it that way. He didn't sit. He stood up. It's amazing to me how a pastor can sit on a chair or on a stool or in a bocker lounge, as one guy in Columbia does, to give a sermon. I couldn't. i get too excited. I, I've got to get up. Not to mention, there's a crowd here, Peter taking his stand with the 11. Again, Matthew had been absorbed. They recognized that. So now they're up to 12 disciples again. And Peter stands as the representative of the 11. Why? Because he had been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so keys are used to open things. And so he is the one who opens the gospel to the Jews. And of course, he's the one who opens the gospel to the Gentiles. And notice when he stands up, all the tongue speaking stops because the Holy Spirit doesn't work against himself. But Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice. It's a big crowd. It demanded his voice be elevated. He has courage. He has boldness. He's filled with the Spirit. And that's what a pastor should do. He should be filled with the Spirit and with authority. He should speak. You know, when I was in seminary, one of my professors said, you know, there'll be times when you're preaching a sermon, you'll just lose your point. He said, if that happens, he said, just just speak a little bit louder and repeat the same thing, just a little bit louder. Well, I heard about a preacher who took that advice and he was preaching about the coming of Christ and the judgment to follow, and he quoted Christ, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and his mind went blank. And he remembered, I just need to repeat it. And he said it a little bit louder, Behold, I come quickly, but it still didn't come. So a little more dramatic, he said, Behold, I come quickly. And he still couldn't remember. So finally, with both hands, he Behold, I come quickly, and in the process, he knocked down the pulpit, fell over, and landed on the lap of the lady in the front row. He was so embarrassed and ashamed. He said, ma'am, I am so sorry. She said, what are you sorry about? You warned me four times that you were coming. (laughs) Peter raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea. That is, those of you who have flocked here into Jerusalem and those who live here, those who live in Jerusalem, let this be, be made known to you and give heed to my words. He is asking with authority for people to give heed to his words. You know, I hear a pastor sometimes as, well, you know, this is my, this is what I think and I think it could be this way. And, but when I hear that constantly over and over and over and over again, I think, why don't you go home and get into the book? And be able to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. Don't speak with such ambiguity. I'm not saying that there aren't times when, you know, we don't know the answer. Where we're hard-shelled and dogmatic in an area the Scripture is not. But most of what's in this book is very clear. And Peter recognizes that. And so he stood up in the midst of thousands of Jewish brethren, and he basically says, this is what God has said, period. Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and give heed to my words. Listen, people, this is what you need to hear. So listen, that's what he's saying. Now, that's boldness. This is the same guy 53 days earlier who denied the Lord. What happened? He had been baptized by the Spirit of God he was a different person. Hey, look, he didn't wake up that morning thinking, you know, I'm going to be preaching to thousands today. I'm going to get, I better get ready. He hadn't even planned to preach that day. So on the one hand, there was no preparation. On the other hand, there was all kinds of preparation because he learned from the Master himself and had been studying the Scriptures his whole life. And so he stands up in a Spirit-filled heart, and with a sense of spontaneity, God ministers through him. And, of course, this is not the whole sermon. There are 20 sermons given in the book of Acts. You have abbreviated sermons. In fact, if you look down at verse 40, it says, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them. But he reasons with them. Verse 15, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's absurd to say that at the third hour of the day, 9 a.m., that these people are loaded. As Paul said, most people who get drunk, get drunk at night. Most sin takes place under the cover of darkness. That's not to say someone couldn't get drunk. You say, I know winos who get up, and the first thing they do is they take a drink. Well, how many 120 winos do you know who then go to a church meeting and speak a miracle language? No, this is something unique. And if the tradition is correct, and it may be we can't say dogmatically on that, Jews fasted on Pentecost till noon, which could be an argument in and of itself. In either case, notice third, the Scripture that God fulfilled. Beyond the reaction, the 11, the 12, face, and the response that Peter gave, notice the Scripture that God fulfilled. Beginning in verse 16, we are told of a fulfillment of prophecy. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Peter wants them to know that this miracle of speaking an unlearned language was a fulfillment of prophecy that Joel wrote about it. This is what? The King James says, this is that. I like that. This is that. This miracle is as a result of prophecy, not as a result of alcohol. This is that. And it shall be in the last days. God says that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves. Both men and women I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, if you go back and you read this prophecy in the book of Joel, it's obvious that he is dealing with the first coming of the Messiah and then the establishment of his kingdom. And if you've read the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, you will immediately make a mental connection with some of these words to the second coming of Christ, where the moon is turned to blood and the sun is darkened. And so God says that this will happen in the last days, meaning during the times of Messiah that speak not only of his humble coming, but someday his glorious and great return. And he mentions here in verse 20, before the great and glorious day of the Lord. You know, the day of the Lord, we studied that in the revelation. It's not a 24 hour day. It's a protracted period of time. Like we in English might say the day of his youth. We didn't mean he was a youth for one day. What well, it refers to the time when Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. Now, walk through it with me carefully. Verse 17, and it shall be in the last days. Now, the term last days is a common expression in the Old Testament that describes the coming of the Messiah. And if you study the Old Testament, you, dis- you learn that there are two comings of the Messiah that are pictured. And many times, like in this verse... They're all brought together in a single passage, and we looked at numerous instances in our exegesis of Daniel and the Revelation where that was the case. Of course, many did not believe in His first coming for the reason some of you listening to me today won't believe in Jesus, because you're self-righteous. Many of the Jews did not believe. He came to His own. His own received Him. Not why. Paul tells us, Romans 10 because they sought to establish their own righteousness rather than to receive the gift of righteousness. They thought they were good enough, and they didn't really need saving. And that's the average American. God's not going to send me to hell. I'm a good person. Now, when He comes the first time, He comes as a suffering servant. When He comes the second time, He comes as a reigning king. And so, in the Old Testament, you find two mountaintops of prophecy, There's Mount Calvary or Mount Moriah where the Messiah is going to die. And there's Mount Olivet where the Messiah will literally plant his feet and split it in two. And of course, in one, he's pictured as a suffering servant and the other a reigning king. Well, if you're under the oppression of Rome, added to that, you don't think you're that bad and you're not really guilty, therefore, you don't really need forgiveness. You're going to want the reigning king picture. And that's why many Jews rejected Jesus. But between these two mountain peaks of prophecy, there's a valley. And we call it the church age. Paul refers to it as a mystery, a mysterion as something that was once hidden but has now been revealed. And so you read in the Old Testament, sometimes in a single verse, a child will be born into us. We recite that every Christmas. The government will be upon his shoulders. That's peak number two. A child will be born to us. We celebrate that, the incarnation. But did the governments ever rest on Jesus' shoulders? Not yet, (laughs) but they will. And so we're in the church age. We're between those two peaks of prophecy. But Pentecost ushered in the last days, the times of the Messiah that include his first coming all the way to his second coming. So you read throughout the New Testament that we're in the last days. For instance, in 1 Peter 1.20, Peter says that Christ has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 1, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. In 1 John 2, the apostle John says, children, it is the last hour. So we have been in the last days, the last hour for 2,000 years. Why? Because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ that nothing has ever, ever needed to be fulfilled for the Messiah to come back a second time. We call that the rapture. Now, the second coming is a prophetically driven event. Israel would need to be in the land. When C.I. Schofield wrote, one of the first popular study Bibles in 1909. In his notes, he mentioned that Israel would be gathered back into the land and that Russia would come someday and attack Israel. And people said, Dr. Schofield, help me with this. Israel hasn't been a nation since 70 AD. Russia, they're a Christian nation. How are they going to attack Israel? He said, I don't know, but the Scripture says it and I believe it. And look what God has done. And God says at the end of time... The latter times, He would bring Israel back into the land. We read in the pastoral prayer, oh, there was a time that people marveled over the Exodus. You go to Israel today and you talk to Orthodox Jews, and they marvel over the fact that they are in their land after 2,000 years. God is setting the stage for the return of His Son from heaven. And when you see prophecy for the second coming unfold, you know the rapture is that much closer. And the rapture, we go up at the second coming, we come down with the Lord Jesus. But when I see the climate of our day, you add to that the days of Noah and the perversion of the days of Lot that are now typifying this nation and not just this nation, this world. I told our graduates on Friday night, Legos, which my kids, my grandkids love, they've gone gay. The gay characters come out for Gay Pride Month. It just doesn't stop. It's child abuse beyond child abuse. And you get mad at me. Some of you, you write your letters and you say, I'm angry at gays. I'm not angry at gays. My heart bleeds for them. I want them to come into the kingdom as much as the adulterer, the fornicator, the drunkard, or any sin that we may be guilty of that condemns us before a holy God. We are living in the last of the last days. Look, no one knows the day or the hour, but the Bible teaches you'll know the season. Paul said that day should not overtake you like a thief. You're not in darkness, brethren. Let me keep reading. I'm almost done. Stay with me. Five minutes and I'm over. And it shall be in the last days, God said, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, men and women, both, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit and they shall prophesy. This prophecy concerning the pouring forth of the Spirit is on all flesh, all mankind. In other words, he's reminding us that The Spirit of God can be given to anyone, whether you're male or female, Jew or Gentile, old or young. He is not a respecter of persons. And God says here, on his bond slaves, they shall prophesy, they shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, sadly, there's a gross misinterpretation. They say, well, men and women prophesy, dream dreams, visions. That means women can be preachers. And so we saw the largest Southern Baptist church in America quote this passage way out of context to justify putting three women into the pastoral ministry. And what a disservice he did to women. Because God has a plan for women that's different from men. But you see, we want to blend the sexes. And when you see denominations blend the sexes, it's just a short step before they acknowledge all other kinds of perversions. Look, this was at a time when a woman could prophesy and dream a dream and have a vision. Why? Because the Bible wasn't completed yet. So how did God speak? They'd be in a church service. A woman, a man would have a direct word from God. They'd be a direct conduit. They might speak in a tongue and someone would supernaturally interpret. Why? Because they couldn't go to the Bible yet. It hadn't been completed yet. Of course, you're to test the spirits to see if they'd be of God. Today, a modern-day parallel of a woman prophesying in church would be for her to pick up the Bible and to read a text of Scripture because it was on the same level. Thus saith the Lord. But to make the jump, oh, this is a sanction for women to be pastors and to violate scores of passages in God's Word is a huge distortion of the Scripture. And what I find so fascinating is history records it and documents it, that when the canon of Scripture was completed, these these prophetic dreams and visions and direct words from God stopped. And they weren't there for 2,000 years, but we're in the last days. So this is a research. No, we've been in the last days. We've just learned since the day of Pentecost. See, it's a twisting and a distortion of the Scripture. Now, there's so much more we could say, but let's ask, how are we going to apply this this morning? Let me suggest some applications as we close. Number one, ask yourself, has your heart ever been moved through the fulfillment of prophecy? Before God ever asks people to believe His Word, He demonstrates that He is a trustworthy God. And one way in which God has revealed His personal integrity is through fulfilled prophecy. On the one hand, men immediately know the Bible is God's Word. Why? Because it's alive and it pricks the human heart. But someone can also study it intellectually and see it is God's Word. And so everything that happened on this day happened by type, by illustration, by prophecy, and it was written 1,500 years before. It's not by accident that Jesus dies on Passover. He's buried on, during the time of the unleavened bread. He's raised in first fruits. And 50 days later, the Spirit of God comes. How did they know all that? Because God wrote this book. Only God knows the future. There is no prophecy in any other book on the face of the earth but the Holy Scripture. Secondly, do you realize that you do not have forever to make a decision? You know, as I studied Peter's quotation here from the book of Joel, I had to ask myself, why did he go so far into the prophecy? He could have stopped reading in verse 18 with Joel's predictions of prophecy and visions and dreams, and why go on about the sun and the moon being darkened and those events that are at the second coming? Those things are in the future that will happen during the tribulation, right before the second coming. Why not just quote the part of the prophecy that was fulfilled on that day? I think two reasons. First, he's just reminding us there's coming a day when time will run out, the sun will get dark, and the moon will turn blood red. But I think as much as anything, he wanted to get to the next verse, and he had this text memorized. He doesn't have a scroll in front of him, You know, sometimes when I want to get a verse, I start where I got it memorized. and Oh, yeah, there it is down here. The next verse was important to him. Verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He wanted to give an invitation to those listening to respond. Third and finally, have you ever received the Holy Spirit? Or you could ask, have you ever been born again? I know there are people today who want to duplicate Pentecost but we're never commanded to repeat Pentecost. In fact, as you study the Scripture carefully, there's only two other times in the New Testament where Pentecost is even mentioned, in Acts 20 and in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says in Acts 20, I want to be with you by the time of Pentecost. Today it might be parallel. I want to be with you by Christmas. It's just a time reference. But we're never commanded to duplicate Pentecost any more than we're commanded to duplicate the parting of the Red Sea, the feeding of the 5,000, to repeat Pentecost, you'd have to have not just the tongues, you'd have to have the flames of fire and the violent rushing wind, and none of them have that. You understand what I'm saying? Pentecost can't be repeated any more than you can repeat Bethlehem or Calvary. Bethlehem is God with us. Calvary is God for us. Pentecost is God in us. And while we can't repeat Pentecost, we can certainly enjoy it because if you will call upon the name of the Lord, He will come and indwell you, and you will have a place in heaven. It's called being born again. And if you're not, you won't go to heaven. It's not like these super spiritual, you know, these supercharged Christians. We call him, you know, He's one of those born-again kind. Jesus said, unless you're born again, You will never enter the kingdom of God. And you can be born again if you will admit you are bankrupt, helpless, a sinner like me in need of grace, and trust Jesus to forgive you and to change you. Our Holy Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word on this Lord's day. Thank you that just as you promised You keep every promise you've ever made, that you would take our stony hearts and soften them into hearts of flesh, that we might all know you from the greatest to the least, that you would place your spirit in us as a deposit of what is yet to take place in the future. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the guarantee that the good work the Father began, you will complete on the day of redemption. Lord Jesus, I pray today for someone who is unsure whether they will be a part of that great resurrection time, the resurrection of the just, because they're unsure of their salvation. Help them in simple childlike faith on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help those of us who have already done that, who are indwelt by the Spirit, to be obedient to him, to be yielded to him. To be fishers of men, even this week, to share with men and women who are lost the best news they can ever hear. You told us not everyone would respond, but we would be blessed when men say all sorts of evil against us falsely on account of you, for our reward in heaven will be great. You haven't called us to be successful, but you have called us to be faithful. So help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.